Please be turning your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. As you're doing that, I'll get wired up. <laughs> Romans chapter 4. Certainly a blessing to be with you tonight. Thank you so much for being with us. I know the brethren especially appreciate those of you who may be visiting and what an encouragement you are uh, in our efforts to study from God's Word and to worship Him and to praise Him. I guess there are always certain characters or persons in the Bible that seem somewhat overwhelming to us. Perhaps it is their courage their faithfulness, uh, our perception of the great character that they exhibited or demonstrated in some way. And then we think about our own failures, you know, our own, own faults and shortcomings, and we begin to compare those things naturally in our mind, and we, we feel that these men and women just overshadow uh, our attempt to serve God. But then there are others, and uh, we seem to relate a little bit better to them. And one of the wonderful things about the Word of God, for all of those great heroic stories of, of faith and courage and character, as we mentioned uh, yesterday, it's rather unsparing of the shortcomings of even the greatest men and women of God. To show us the life as a whole, to show us the journey and the struggle, which is so important for us to see. And so when we think of David as great a man as David was, when we think about early on David and Goliath, and we read his Psalms, his heartfelt outpouring before God. And yet there is that darker time in his life when he failed to be who he seems to be. And we see his confession. And we see his heartache. And we see him restored by God's grace, but still dealing with the earthly consequences of his actions, though he had been forgiven. We talked about Peter yesterday. And Peter, very courageous man, of tremendous character, but it doesn't always feel like it starts out that way. He, he struggles through. And you know, maybe you, you see that time in David's life and somebody says, I can, I can relate to that. Or we think about Peter and his growth, but yet we see his shortcomings. And I say, you know, I can relate to Peter. But there's some other individuals in the Bible that, that still seem to be somewhat overshadowing to us. Paul may be one of those people. You know, I get Peter, Paul's a tough one. Because it just feels like after his conversion, he's so determined and so strong. But you know, we know Paul had his struggles. And from time to time, even in his writings, you can, you can see that. And then there's Abraham. And while it's important for us to understand there's some very unique things about Abraham that we don't necessarily relate to as far as him being the father of the Hebrew nation and the, and the kind of call that he received and how important that would eventually be in the redemption of humanity and mankind. Sometimes we selectively, I think, read the story of Abraham. And if I selectively read the story of Abraham, I miss the, the bigger theme here regarding how faith functions. 
And so what we're going to do tonight is think about Abraham's journey of faith. And that's the way we need to see it. And so we see the successes, we see the triumphs, we see the victories, but it's important to see the struggle as well and the need to grow. And I hope there'll be some real benefit in that. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 4 makes some rather interesting uh, statements that are worthy of our attention. Notice what he says about Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, we'll come back and get the earlier portion in a little bit, but let's start in Romans chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver. The old King James, I think, says he did not stagger at the promise of God. He did not hesitate at the promise of God. So with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, is those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Now here's the thing about what he says at the very outset. And he says the kind of faith that Abraham had is the kind of faith that we can have. So whoa, wait a minute. You mean I can have the kind of faith that Abraham had? Yes. In fact, the kind of faith that Abraham had was a saving faith. And that's the only kind of faith that will save the sinner. And so he even says, you know, I'm not just writing this to give you some history. He is certainly giving us some important history. But he says, I'm, we are connected to him. Now, of course, the New Testament's going to tell us that we're the children of Abraham by faith. Not because of our flesh. Not because of some physical heritage. But by faith. Because Christ is our Savior and he comes through the lineage of Abraham. And these promises were made to Abraham. And we enjoy the Messianic promise through Jesus. But then he makes this statement and you know you read this statement and you say, wow, that's a tremendous statement. In Romans 4, as he is talking about Abraham, you'll notice there in verse 20, he says, with respect to the promise of God, he, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief. 
He did not hesitate in unbelief. He did not stagger at the promise of God. Now let me ask you something. Is that true across the board in every absolute sense you can imagine that Abraham never staggered, never wavered, never hesitated? Or is it important to know the story of Abraham and that this is the kind of faith he grew into as a servant of God? And it's also the kind of faith we must grow into as servants of God. Now, is that a true statement? Well, it's certainly a true statement. But we're going to flesh this out a little bit tonight, Lord willing, and try to understand, well, what part of Abraham's life is he, is he referencing here, first of all? And what's the, the big lesson here? Now, in order to do this, if you'll uh, be patient with me, we need to back up in Romans a little bit to appreciate why Paul's even bringing this up. And I think if we do that, that gives some real context to what's going on. And so what does it really mean to have faith is one of the first questions that we need to ask. What does it really mean to have faith? How is Paul using the term faith? Now, there are several reasons why this is important, but many of our very well-meaning and sincere religious friends have been told as they read through a book like Romans, and Galatians is the same way, that when Paul is talking, uses the word faith, they interpret that. They've been told that means faith only. Of course, there's a big problem with that because the Bible never teaches that we're saved by faith only. We're saved by faith. We cannot be saved without faith, but James says that faith only does not save a man. So what does Paul really mean when he talks about being saved by faith? Now you'll see this contrast throughout the New Testament, especially in Romans and Colossians along with other sections, between faith and works. And so some people just assume when they read this that what Paul means is faith only without any acts of obedience. And that's how they interpret works. The problem is that's not what Paul means by works. And that would violate plenty of other texts, including the very text Paul is writing throughout Romans. So if we can understand what he means by faith and what he means by works, that really helps to see what's going on in the life of Abraham and thus what should be going on in our lives as those who are believers. During the time that Paul writes this, I think those who heard him had a complete understanding, if they so desired, regarding what he would have meant by faith. And they should have known that he wasn't talking about faith only, even by just reading what he said. You know, during the first century, if somebody had said, faith to the king, what would have been meant by that? Would that have meant, well, I know that the king exists, so we're all good? Or will, would that have meant, yes, I believe the king is an authority, but I give my loyalty, my faithfulness, my fidelity, my allegiance to the king? Well, sure, that's, they would have understood that. Faith to the king means I give my allegiance to the there's a sense in our faith of, of trust and confidence, and that needs to be emphasized. But I would say to you 
then in Paul's mind, the, the idea of somehow extricating or removing the notion of loyalty and fidelity and allegiance to Jesus as king from the concept of faith would have been impossible. And when he talks about works in this context, which we're going to read in Romans chapter 4, it's very important to remember he's dealing with the fact in the first three chapters of Romans that Jew and Gentile have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They all have the same problem. They all need the same Savior. And they all are subject to the same gospel. And if they obey that gospel, they all enter into the same kingdom and their fellow heirs. And so when you deal with that in a very universal way, Romans 1, 2, and 3, you come to Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jews and Gentiles. When you come to Romans 4, he begins to talk about Abraham. Because the Jew would say, hey, I'm a child of Abraham. As a Jew. And Paul, you're telling me that the, as a Jew, as one who's been a child of Abraham, I obey the gospel and the Gentiles and the Jews, these Gentiles who've come out of paganism and out of idolatry, that we're on equal footing. That's exactly what's being said. So look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law of works? No, but by law of faith. And this is a really important verse. Because what it shows us is there's this contrast between a, a system or a law of works that is a works-based system and a faith-based system. Now when I say faith-based system, that doesn't mean obedience is unnecessary. In fact, the choice you made to believe in Jesus was itself an act of obedience. And he's still emphasizing though, how am I saved? Am I saved by grace through a faith that gives full loyalty and commitment to Jesus? Or am I saved by circumcision or by the diet that I have? Because in the minds of many Jewish people, those are boundary markers between them and the Gentiles. But he says that system won't save you because you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. And so when we see faith and works throughout the rest of Romans, he starts out with a system of faith versus a system of works. He drops law of and just says faith and works. Certainly he's saying I can't earn my salvation. There's nothing I do to merit my salvation. I don't deserve salvation, but that does not deny. There's no denial that there is a sense in which I must submit in obedience to the gospel. Now, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. With that in the background, he says, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? Remember, they're saying we're children of Abraham. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. If you happen to be taking notes or have a really good memory, that is a reference to Genesis 15.6. We're going to come back to that in a minute. That is very important. So he references Genesis 15.6, which is a general statement of the life that Abraham lived by faith. Now, 
in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. If I were to perfectly perform, that would be one issue, but none of us have perfectly performed. He says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So notice what he's saying. Now to the one who does not work, what does that mean? He's not saying to the one who does not obey. He's saying to the one who is not sinless. To the the man or woman who's not sinless, we've all sinned, but rather believes, has that, that, that obedient faith in him who justified the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. How could that be though? Well, in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Here it is. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been what? Forgiven. The reason we can be counted righteous through the condition of faith and obedience to the gospel is we've been forgiven. It's not a shell game. God's actually forgiven us through faith. Now, it is interesting. He mentions Abraham and he mentions David. And you don't get any bigger than the two of those names. And you know what he says? He says even Abraham and even David had to be forgiven to be right with God. Now, look at verse 9. Is this blessing, and by blessing it means forgiveness, Is this blessing then on the circumcised? Now, I know sometimes when we read Paul, at least I do, you can get dizzy pretty quick. Okay, But let's hang with it because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this really is a tremendous argument, especially if you're the Jews saying, but I've been circumcised. He says, notice it. He says, is this blessing, forgiveness, then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also, for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? Now this is where, if you know the history, now listen, Paul's making a historical argument to people that should have known it. But if we don't know it, we miss out on the argument, all right? But you all know it because enough of you are shaking your head yes. (laughs) Okay, so he says, how then, or when did this happen? How then was it credited? While he was circumcised, that was right about Genesis chapter 17. Or uncircumcised, that would have been before Genesis 17. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Let's pause there for just a minute. Get what he's saying. He's like, okay, let's talk about some history. So you're saying you're the children of Abraham. It's all about circumcision, which was not just about circumcision, but keeping the old law. But that's what really, that's what's going to save you. But he said, based on that, the criteria you're using to deny the Gentile salvation, you would end up excluding Father Abraham. Because if you, and we're going to look at the history in just a minute, but if you look at Abraham, when was he actually saved initially 
by faith a while before Genesis 17. Really, actually, about the end of Genesis 11, coming into Genesis 12. And we know that because Hebrews 11.8 says it's he by faith left the earth of the Chaldees, and that's where that happens. And by the way, his, his family were better idolaters than believers. And he had, according to what's in Joshua, and so he comes out of that, he listens to the Lord, and remember by faith he went out not knowing where he was going? That was the beginning of the journey, not the end. And so Paul is saying, listen, Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. Now, he, he was circumcised because at the time that was a seal or a sign of the covenant, and to obey God, he had to do that. But he was walking by faith through from Genesis into Genesis 11 and beginning of Genesis 12 all the way through 13, 14. We have the statement in chapter 15 and verse 6, which is a general statement of his life and coming on in. And then when he's told to, to, to be circumcised, certainly he did that in Genesis 17. Hang on to that thought. We'll be back there in just a minute. Now then, verse 12. He says he's the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow. Now watch this. Now I, I have heard preachers, and not just denominational preachers, by the way, preachers say that Romans 4 doesn't talk about anything that Abraham did. And there's a Greek word for that, and it's the word baloney. If you read through Romans 4, every time you see faith, you know, you know there's it's an act of faith. And without becoming too specific, there's plenty of activity in Romans chapter 4 by faith. But here's what I know. Verse 12 is all you need. The father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also, listen, follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he had while being uncircumcised. Now, when you put with this Romans 1.5, what, what, watch this. At the very beginning of the book and then at the very end of the book, it's very helpful. Romans 1.5, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The obedience of faith. That's what this is all about. And then when you get to the very end of the book, and you'll recall in Romans 16, 26, he uses the same phrase, the obedience of faith. When we come to Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, and I, let's really have our minds around this. Remember he says, through forgives we're made righteous apart from works. But he's talking about meritorious works. He's not talking about obedience altogether because in Romans 6, 6, 6.16 he says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now listen to this. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So he says, we're made righteous apart from works. Then he says, we're made righteous through obedience to the gospel, to Christ. Therefore, the works that don't save isn't the gospel. So when we, when we keep all this in its proper context, what we find out is that faith is not a non-doing trust. It is not a non-doing trust. It's loyalty, 
It's allegiance. It's response. It's surrender. It's submission. And that's how the text of Scripture deals with it. You know, something else that's interesting to me, when Galatians 2.20 and other passages talk about faith, have you ever thought about the language that's used regarding faith? Crucifixion. Death. Resurrection. Transformation. Does that sound like easy believism to you? Or does that sound like conversion to Jesus? And so with that in the context there in Romans 4, that brings us back to how, how do we process this? Is it true that Abraham always had, that he always was striving to trust the Lord and do what the Lord said, but did he ever fall or falter or failure? And if he did, then why does Paul say he, he didn't waver here in Romans chapter? So, so let's work through this. And one of the first things, and I think this is so vital for us and helpful, at least it's been helpful to me. And it's really important to see when we talk about faith and we talk about Abraham. And if you want to go ahead and be turning your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 12, we'll be there in just a moment. But when we talk about faith, and we look at someone like Abraham. It's important to understand that when Paul says he did not waver at the promise of God. This is dealing with faith as a journey, not necessarily just a snapshot. You know, I would suppose I'm not alone but we can all think about times in our lives in which we weren't exactly surrendering to Jesus. And they were snapshot moments. And if everybody knew, if everybody knew about those snapshot moments, we'd be very, very ashamed. Now we've been forgiven. We've repented of that. We've asked God for forgiveness. We've moved on. Now, sometimes what happens is we can allow that snapshot to become another snapshot, to become another snapshot, and it becomes the whole picture, doesn't it? And that's what's called apostasy and departure from God. But it doesn't have to. What we see in Abraham, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to allude and reference a few snapshots to show us he had some bad moments. But it's important for you to know, you may be thinking, I'm trying, I've asked God for forgiveness and I've obeyed the gospel and I'm trying to get over my snapshots. But we can, by God's grace. So that the journey can be described as we're not wavering anymore. Doesn't mean we never make mistakes, but we're not wavering, we're not hesitating. But listen, brethren, you have to grow into that. That doesn't just happen. And so as we think about what we see in Romans, we need to go back and think about how Genesis 15:6 is used in this history. Okay. So let's go back to we're in Genesis. Before we get into Genesis 12, I just want you to notice in Genesis 15 and verse 6, 
This is a very important verse, even from a New Testament perspective, because it's quoted several times. So God has been reassuring Abraham, and you'll notice in Genesis 15, 6, he says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. What's really interesting to me about that statement, some read this and say, well, this is when I, I had... In debate, uh, Calvinists tell me they, they argue for what they call point justification and then they argue it's irreversible. So you you initially believe there you now it's once saved, always saved. See. The problem with that is if you go to Genesis 15, 6, he was actually saved before Genesis 15, 6. And what's really interesting, which is very helpful in the long term when you think about it, this verse in Genesis 15, 6, and I'll give us some examples of that in just a moment is quoted several times in the New Testament and applied by inspired New Testament writers to different moments in Abraham's life. Now that's significant. That means as he kept believing and he kept trusting and he kept surrendering and he kept obeying and when he fell down, he got back up and he asked God to forgive him and he moves on. That's what it means to live by faith. And so when we think about the history of this a little bit, let's, let's work through a few things. Now we talked a little bit about Genesis 11 and 12, but let's go back there. So in the history of Abraham's life, we have this call at the end of Genesis 11. You can read about um, him being called out of the earth of the Chaldees. And then you get into Genesis 12 and there's that promise to go from your country um, and I'll make you a great nation. Verse 2, and I will bless you and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, etc. So he's called out of the earth of the Chaldees. Now how do I know he had saving faith? Because the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 11 is about people who had saving faith. And while there's several moments mentioned by the writer of Hebrews, in Abraham's life, this is where it begins. So we have that in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, but that's not the only place. Come over to Acts chapter 7, and I know we're going to be hitting some verses pretty quickly, but I think this is important. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is recounting Jewish history, you'll notice in verse 2, and he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That's the initial call. Because of his faith, he leaves and he, and he goes out. The will of God. We don't have to read it, but Galatians 3, in verses 6 and 8, quote Genesis 12 and reference Genesis 15, 6. Now stay with me for a minute. That means even though it's later on when we're reading in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and was accounted to him for righteousness, he was called the friend of God. The reason a New Testament writer can do that is to say that's when his faith began. God is saying generally he was a man of faith. And he grew into this. And he continued to trust the Lord. Okay, so we have the initial call there. And so all the way through Genesis 12 through 14, doesn't mean Abraham never made a mistake. We'll get to that in just a minute. But chapters 12, 13, and 14, that can be applied to him. The statement is not applied to Abraham because he was flawless. 
It's applied to him because he was faithful. And he kept getting back up. Now he wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17 and we see the fruition of that faith in Genesis 22, which we'll come back to in a minute. But when you're in Romans 4, here's some more. Somebody said, wait a minute, Bruce, let's go back to Romans 4. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so we go back to Romans chapter 4. If you read Romans 4, Genesis 15, that statement we've been talking a lot about, he believed the Lord and was counting for righteousness. He was called the friend of God, is reference. But he also references Genesis 17.5. which takes us back in Genesis 17.5 even to the promise of Genesis 12. So, why do we read what we do in Romans 4? Because Paul is making the point that the time came when Abraham and Sarah grew in their faith not that they didn't have any faith before, but they grew in their faith to the point that they no longer were wavering at the promise of God. And it can be said they didn't waver at the promise of God. Now, you really think Abraham never, never at all struggled? We know Abraham and Sarah both did. We have the whole issue with Hagar, which we'll talk about in a minute, and Ishmael, and trying to improvise for God, right? They grew past that. So when I read Romans 4, I've got to take it in the context of the whole book of Genesis. But his point is, I can grow in my faith too. It's also interesting to me, come back to Romans 4, the, the illustration here. Come back to Romans 4. There's, there's something happening here. So in Romans chapter 4, notice the language. He says in verse 17 that the God we serve gives life, now listen to his language, gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In verse 19 he says, without becoming weak in faith because he had grown past that. He contemplated his own body now as good as what? Dead. Since he was about 100 years old, he trusted the promise of God. Now what's interesting to me is when we come to Romans chapter 6. Because the way he describes, I understand what happens with Abraham is, is miraculous, but there's a bigger principle here. And that is the God we serve has the power, friend, to raise the dead. And that goes for physical death. That goes for bringing life into being when Abraham and Sarah initially were thinking, how could this happen? And it goes for you and me too. Because Romans 6 says, when we obey the gospel, that old man of sin is what? Dead, dead in that sin. But we're made alive by Christ's grace when we're buried with Him in baptism. So we walk, we walk in the steps of Abraham. So, look at that chart for a minute. 
We have Genesis 15.6, which would include Genesis 12. We have Genesis 15.6 in, in Romans 4 that I actually think is referencing more Genesis 21. At least we know he certainly had, he and Sarah had strong faith. That's when Isaac comes on the scene. But then later on, James talking about neither one of those previous things, talking about Mount Moriah when, he, when he's commanded to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah. He applies Genesis 15, 6 to that event. So we have New Testament writers say, listen, Genesis 15, 6 is a general statement that with all of Abraham's failures and shortcomings and faults as, as he beheld the grace of God, he grew in that faith. And so faith is about me continuing to live for God and trust God and His mercy. And if I know the story of Abraham, it really helps with this. Now, did he come to a turning point as he, keep as he kept trying to serve the Lord? Certainly. Let's talk about a few things. Go back to Genesis with me that we know were a struggle. Come to Genesis 12. Come to Genesis chapter 12. You know, there's some times I'm just not for sure Abraham's going to get the husband and father of the year award here uh, in Genesis chapter 12. Now, he and Sarah, I'm sure, had some discussion and he was fearful. So look at Genesis 12 and verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt. And he said to Sarah, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Guys, you're, you're, or ladies, you're off in a foreign country. <laughs> and your husband looks deeply into your eyes and says, you are so beautiful. I've got an idea. The king is going to think that too. So why don't I just hand you over to him and you can be with him for a while. So here we are in Genesis 12 and the Egyptians are going to notice her. And when the Egyptians see this, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister. Let me ask you something. Was she his sister? That's the old thing. Wink or Blake, shake or not. Was she his sister? Well, yeah. There, I mean, there's a level of truth in that. But was that really telling truth? No, because an important part of the story is she's his wife. So he doesn't tell, tell that part. So we come on down to verse 13. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? I love this line right here. He says, now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. <laughs> Take this woman and get out of here. 
I mean, probably not Abram's finest moment. But Paul says he didn't waver. Come over to Genesis 20. You know, it kind of happens again. Genesis 20. This time it's Abimelech. Look at verse 4. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in his dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became his wife. And he goes on and mentions some other things. Abimelech was told the truth, the whole truth, by God. Now, I only point those things out to say this. And that is that when we think of the story of Abraham, this is a bad snapshot, but it's not the whole portrait. In Genesis 15, 1 through 6, come back to Genesis 15, when, when we have that statement about him believing the Lord is accounting him for righteousness, and you have to appreciate he, he's been given this promise and it's not coming as quickly as maybe he thought it would. And God reassures him and says, do not fear. And in verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And you know, they're constantly trying to come up with plan B. And then when we get into Genesis 16 with with Sarah, he's willing to compromise. Look at Genesis 16 in verse 2. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened. Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, kind of like Adam listened to the voice. And what's interesting to me, and this might be a, a point of thought here, later on when Sarah recounts this, let me tell you what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, you know, do you remember when I had that terrible idea I gave you and we together decided to do this? No. What she says is, you did this. And do you know what? She was right. He surrendered the leadership of caring for himself, trusting God's promise, and his wife. 
It's one thing to listen to her and say, you know, that wouldn't be in your best interest or mine. That's not the will of God. But that's not what he did. And then in chapter 17, we have this whole situation. They made a mess. Verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, if you want to differ with me, you go for it. <laughs> okay. And if you can convince me, then I'll change my mind. But a lot, a lot of commentators come right here and they say, well, you know, Sarah laughed and shame on her. But Abraham, when he laughed, maybe it was he laughed in this great faith. Well, that seems odd to me, myself, reading the text. Because the next thing he talks about is Ishmael. Whatever the motive is, he's, he's still not getting it. Isaac is the child of promise. Now, look, look here. Look here with me. So, he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look at what God says. God doesn't compliment him. God doesn't say, oh, you've shown such great faith, Abraham. Look at verse 19. But God said, no. No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. I haven't forgotten about Ishmael, but he's not the child of promise. Verse 21, but my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you, at this season next year. Now why was he struggling? For the same reasons we struggle. He was afraid. You know when, you, when fear just dominates you. We just make bad decisions. Or when we become so anxious that we stop trusting the Lord. He did that too. Yes, Abraham did that too. Struggled with that. Sometimes he wants to please the wrong people instead of the Lord. He was led by emotion. Now, he's not the only one. You remember Peter in Matthew 16? He had just confessed Jesus. And Jesus starts talking about his death. And you could understand Peter emotionally didn't want that. And he takes him aside. He's going to give some advice to the Lord. <laughs> he takes him to the side and he says, be far from me, Lord. This shall not be unto me. Why? Because his emotions are raging at this point. He doesn't understand all that's going on. And Jesus said very gently, get behind me who? Satan. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Peter means well. 
him trying to talk the Lord out of his mission was unwittingly, to be sure, doing the work of Satan, not the work of God. You know, sometimes situations come up and we know what's right. But then there's those emotions. And emotions can be good. But if it becomes emotionalism, and now it's not about what the Lord says, it's about my emotion. I think Peter just was being overtaken by what he wanted. And that happened to that happened to Abraham. But you know what? He hung in there. He hung in there. And he kept trusting the Lord. He kept trusting the Lord. And he kept serving Him and getting back up. And here's what we have in Romans 4. He grew. Now, turn to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. And then we're going to go to James. So we come to Genesis 22. He believed the Lord. who was accounted for righteousness. He called the friend of God. But he has turned a corner. If you'll hang in there and you'll keep getting back up and trusting the Lord's forgiveness, you'll keep growing and you'll turn the corner. Doesn't mean you won't ever make another mistake. But as far as faithfulness and devotion goes, you'll turn the corner. Look at Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, and get this language, it sounds like a foreshadow of Jesus. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So you've waited this whole time. You've gone through all of this. And God says, this child of promise that you now have after slogging through the wilderness, I want you to take him and offer him to me. You know... Can you understand why he might have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But he does it this time. Look at how he's, he's grown in chapter 22 and verse 3. When did Abraham do this? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, now listen to what he says, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. I'm sure you've noticed that before. He says, we are going to return to you. And he took the wood of the burnt offering, he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it in the hand, or he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. I've often wondered what the expression on Isaac's face was. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamp of the burnt offering? Listen to Abraham. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamp of the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. And they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now let me turn you to Hebrews chapter 11 very quickly. Hebrews chapter 11. What was going through his mind this time? Well, watch what 
we read in Hebrews 11. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, now listen to what he says, offered up Isaac. By the way, every time a New Testament writer talks about this event, they talk in a way that he had actually gone through with it, that he offered up Isaac. Why? Because in his heart, it was done. But he still trusted God's promise. Look at this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. Listen, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a tithe. He had resolved, I'm doing exactly what God told me to do, but I still believe if that means my son dies and God will have to raise him from the dead, he will do exactly that. He's come a long way. Now James chapter 2. James Chapter 2. So when we come to Romans 4, can you see why Paul would say against hope, he believed in hope. He considered not the weakness of his own body. He gave glory to God. He didn't waver. But he doesn't mean he never had any struggles. But James 2. James 2. James talks about the kind of faith that saves. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. He says, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless, without activity? Now stay with me. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, that is, works of faith, when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, what chapter is that in Genesis? Genesis chapter 22. Now, stay with this. And the Scripture. What Scripture? The Scripture was fulfilled, which says... And Abraham believed God. It was reckoned him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. Now this is a big deal. We've got to get this. He says, that passage over there in Genesis 15, 6, he believed the Lord was counting for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. By the way, it can't be faith only. Believing the Lord, he said, we see its fruition. We see its completion. We see its maturity in Genesis 22. That's exactly the argument James makes. He says, you know that statement about him believing the Lord? Look at verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works, that is the activity of faith, and not by faith alone. But what else is James telling us? Though That statement about him believing the Lord, there's a real sense in which when we go to Mount Moriah and we see what happens with Isaac, we see what that means. Now then, so in Genesis 15, we have that verse, which is quoted in Romans 4. In Genesis, at least by 21, maybe before, we have 
Genesis 15, 6. Look at this though. And in, in, in James 2, Genesis 22 is said to be the fulfillment of Genesis 15, 6. Does that mean that when he fell and he faltered, when he got back up, the Lord still, when he saw Abraham, as he got back up and he asked for forgiveness and he kept obeying and kept working and kept trusting that he would say he believed the Lord? Yes. Does that mean that when they came to really believe his promise about Isaac, he would say he believed the Lord? Does that mean when he asked him to rise early that one morning and offer his son to attest his faith, that it would be said that he believed the Lord? Yes. So, before we go, and I know you're probably quoting from the Old Testament, you're probably thinking, you know, even the Lord let his people go, Bruce. So let us go. <laughs> okay, I'm going to let you go. But here's what I want you to know. If you're struggling right now, and it can be a lot of different things. It can be a mom. She's got those young kids, and you're tired, <laughs> and you're worn out. And some days you don't exactly feel like her or uh, your greatest step of the journey of faith. Or maybe it's, it's dad and he's working on that short temper. Or maybe it's a rocky time in your marriage right now, but you still believe the Lord. Or maybe you've been struggling. You remember Abraham. You believe the Lord and you obey Him and He'll be with you. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to get stronger every day. You're going to get stronger every day. And eventually your Mount Moriah is going to come and you're going to rise early in the morning and you're going to do exactly what God wants you to do. Doesn't mean you'll never have some hardship or some struggles or some disappointments, just like He did. But you can believe the Lord and obey Him and serve Him. You've listened very, very well. Let's, this is something we can take with us now, tomorrow, tonight. Let's be like Abraham and keep trusting and keep getting back up and keep believing because the God we serve will be true to His promise. If you're not a Christian, if you have that kind of faith, if you have that kind of faith, you can become God's child. We sing that old song one step at a time. Till faith grows stronger in thee until hope grows stronger in me. Come down together we stand and we'll sing.